Greetings and welcome to the Sonic Clothery. We are back at it again. We are chasing musical rabbit holes and we are filling our bellies up with music that we have no time or energy to properly explore. But, uh, you know, it's winter time. We're, we're in hibernation mode right now. There is still a plague running amok out there, yet we are out here. We are getting fat on this music shit. And for this episode, we're going to be putting on uh, a lot of pounds with uh, some big, fat, rotund, greasy synthesizers. But I got to do a little bit of podcast shit before we jump into the music. Um, You know, your real podcasting professionals call this part housekeeping. But I I am trying to get out episodes at a faster rate than, uh, you know, the current once a month rate. But, um, you know, things are busy. Things are a little frantic at the moment, um, so unless somebody really wants to uh, write me a check, I can tell the boss to fuck off. You know, until that happens, we have the schedule that we have. But I am hoping to pick up the pace. I want to get some leaner episodes in. The last several have been uh, two plus, three, uh, sometimes three plus hours. And, you know, I'm not sure if newcomers to this podcast ever go back. And listen to the early episodes but um you know there was a time during like the first five episodes where where i would be very disciplined i would settle on seven tracks i'd keep the episode to like an hour and i, I kind of had that realization the other day and i was just like fuck man like <laughs> i really let this thing uh spiral out of control but um you know what can you do it's just ebbs and flows but um you know in the meantime hit me with a rating and review if you can um, just hit the appropriate number of stars in your podcast app. Uh, maybe write a little public note, uh, heaping some praise or maybe talking shit. I'm, I'm honestly happy to be seen either way. Uh, what else? I had something else. Um, so, oh, 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 somebody messaged me asking um, if I had a Patreon or anything like that. And, and I definitely don't. Um, and, and then it got me thinking maybe I could add a donation link. So um, I took the very easy route and I set up a, a PayPal that goes uh, straight to my bank account. Um, theoretically, it would be used to cover some equipment costs and, and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, don't be expecting any receipts. I'll just leave it at that. You can, you can find the link. I'm going to throw that in the description. You can also go to paypal.com slash paypalme slash the sonic cloth um also if you go to any of my social media you'll find uh, a link in the bio as well but anyway all donations super appreciated uh and i think that should probably do it for behind the scenes shit so these next two episodes are linked in in very much the same way that i did uh, a two-parter on ecstatic music And what this means basically is that the first episode is going to be focused on some of these early OGs of synthesizer music. You know, we're talking starting in the 70s and 80s. Of course, this is not the advent of synthesizer music. It's just the two decades that I'm most interested in that that really work for me. And and the second episode is going to be um, really focused on artists from the 90s all the way through today. So here we're talking about some of these more contemporaries, uh, you know, some of these posers who are directly ripping off the masters. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's not actually that. To, to be honest, I could definitely find that. It's very easy. 
all you gotta do is uh, go to Bandcamp and uh, just search for the Synthwave tag and, and you will be met with hundreds and hundreds of pages of search results, all with neon album covers and 80s fonts and um, uh, this kind of like uh, uh, retro futurist kind of kind of bullshit. But, you know, like I'm saying, it, it would be really easy to like parade that stuff out. Um, you know, that, that stuff at the end of the day is novelty shit. And, and I think we all know that that's not very interesting. So for this upcoming part two, uh, you know, I think I've done a pretty decent job in plucking out some of these newer artists, you know, people who are leaning on this tradition, but are injecting new ideas into it. You're always welcome to write me at thesonicloth at gmail.com and rattle off a list of seminal tracks and artists that I've neglected. You know, the meaner spirited and the more elitist, I would say the better. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm never trying to ruffle any feathers here. This is always just one man's opinion. But like, for example, in this episode, you're not going to hear any craft work. You know, so this episode is basically born in sin. But, you know, if you write me this email, I will definitely read your nasty uh, words on air during the next episode, especially if you go at me hard. So take that as an incentive to write the bitchiest email of music snobbery possible. It could be sarcastic, it could be genuine, it, it could, I could not even maybe even be able to tell the difference. Um, but you know, the point is, we'll, we'll all have a good laugh together. All right, before we get into these old school synth wizards, we need to get some things straight here. And, and the best way for me to do that is to define what styles of music and sounds we are not getting into today. And I'm gonna give you a warning, it's a bit of a long list. We are getting really, really uh, specific in this uh, rabbit hole today. So I, I'm you know, willfully ignoring the following types of music. So no synth pop, uh, no super early electronic and experimental music, you know, which was very difficult because there's there is so much cool shit in in that realm. Um, if you want a recommendation, check out uh, the album "An Electric Storm" by White Noise. I think it 1969 record, really really cool record. Um, we're not going to be getting into any uh, early industrial music from the 80s. We're not going to be doing any classic rock bands that just happen to play with synths. So uh, no Boston, even though, you know, first Boston album rules uh, unanimously. This is non-negotiable. Um, we're not going to get too heavy into prog rock, but you better believe we're going to listen to some uh, very crowdy shit. I mean, Germany is completely unavoidable here. Um, what else? No jazz with synths. So, um, you know, that means no Sun Ra which sucks, um, you know, he, he was definitely an early pioneer of like shredding on a synthesizer. And, and I would definitely recommend going on YouTube and, and just watching Sun Ra like freaking out during like the days of where he was really obsessed with playing the synths. And then, yeah, the last one, we're not gonna do any disco either. And, and again, it's, I have nothing against these styles of music. I actually really like all of them. Um, and, and there was definitely some visionary synth uh, you know, being played in each of these sort of movements and subgenres, but the soul of what we're tracking down here uh, can be summed up like really easily. Basically, just picture someone, picture them sitting down in front of an analog synth and, or like a rack of synths, and, and then just they just don't emerge from that spot for like a month. And, and that's exactly the kind of dedication that we want here. I mean, we want music that puts the synth above all other things. 
And basically, we're after the fruits of the labor of, of these people spending countless hours being hunched over and tinkering around with these pre-digital synthesizers. And, and I'm looking at this as a, you know, a kind of a solitary way of constructing music. It's just you and this intimidating technology that has millions of sonic possibilities and everything is just distilled into this like janky looking keyboard box thing that has dials and buttons and inputs and oscillators and, and all the other technical shit that I am in no way qualified to talk about. I mean, I think I know, I know maybe two or three synthesizers off the top of my head. You got like, and it's the basics. Like, I, I know the Mini Moog, um, and I know the Yamaha CS80, uh, and I, I think that might be it. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for an intro to the instrument, this is not the time nor the venue. What we're after here is the tracks. It's what we're all about here. Tracks all day. Um, and, and, and I think it really benefits like the listener with this rabbit hole to just kind of engulf yourself in like nothing but like progressive synthesizer albums like after you hear this playlist it's because it's it becomes very apparent that this is like music created by people who stay up all hours of the night just to like dial in a tone that that might be used for like 30 seconds on one track it's really people who are able to like explore moods through like the twisting and turning of knobs you know creating all of these like vast imagined textures like out of these different synthesizers and 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 it can be really really epic and and fantastical and it can also be deeply personal and emotional um and, and then it can also be like you know esoteric and, and experimental or maybe some kind of like calling out to the void and, and it might all sound synthy at the end of the day too, but like the diversity that these artists who were like overwhelmingly not classically trained people, like the sound that they arrived at while simultaneously like tinkering around with synths within the span of like these 20 years, this 70s to 80s, uh, two decades that we're exploring here is just amazing. And, and I think that they really laid the foundation for you know, future synth heads and, or, or like that one guy in the band who exists only to like put in synthesizers and beats and bleeps and bloops and like whatever else into the music like that guy in the band like these people that we're talking about now they're kind of like your your proto like johnny greenwoods just imagine them in like a modern band rock context and it doesn't have to be like a one person synth exploration either like some of these tracks throw in um a lot of other instruments and and i'm actually like happy when that happens but a lot of these tracks are these solo synth pieces, um, you know, just created by these absolute madmen and madwomen who are basically like jamming with themselves in a lot of ways. You know, they're, or they're orchestrating all of these possibilities of sound on a single machine and finding a way to express like what is human into what is robot. And the way that I, I think about it is like somebody like singing a song into a box and then a robot picks up the box and processes the singing and then like translates it into their own like robot tongue but um you know i think we're probably ready to dive in here i don't want to uh, get too deep into this uh, i could keep hitting you with metaphors but th th that would get out of control so uh you know we're going to be exploring some really cool shit here we get into everything from progressive electronic music to like soundtrack composers um, we get into like minimalism and krautrock and even like kind of the early breakbeat kind of shit 
and and all this stuff just turned out to be insanely influential to modern electronic music to techno to synthwave to film scoring to cosmic jammy music like so much shit and and again as always we are scratching the surface here i mean this is a deep hole to burrow down as usual so if you're new to this stuff what i recommend is start with this playlist take the track list in keep a note of the stuff that is speaking to you and then um pull up ratemusic.com and just kind of go to town on the on the artist id um you can kind of browse what's like their most loved work and you can see what other artists like pop up in their orbit because there's a lot of collaboration between these artists um i'd also recommend sticking it out for part two of this series which um, i think will be pretty interesting after hearing this material because these sounds like never fully died it, they went on really from like the late 60s through to the 90s and into now i mean it probably went like a bit dormant in the 2000s but shit like most everything that was good did too um so so no big loss there but without further ado let's get into this thing synth wizards 1970s through the 1980s let's do this all right we are coming in hot with a group i could not possibly leave out i am talking about tangerine dream but uh you know right off the bat i am fucking everything up by picking a track off an album that is way later in their discography and nowhere near as like seminal as their earlier work from the 70s. I'm talking about albums like Zayt, uh, Rubicon, or, or even Phaedra. But what we're going to hear here is the title track off of the album Exist from 1981, which is a, kind of a terrible record overall, to be honest. And, and also, I, ha I have no idea about this but apparently this track was used in the in the movie risky business and also in season one of stranger things but uh, you know now that i hear that like it makes a lot of sense this track perfectly demonstrates how easy like synths can slide into like an aesthetic uh, or an imagination of science fiction or horror or, or supernatural things or just like kind of ominous vibes it, it's just the perfect instrument to, to soundtrack that type of visual so a bit of background on Tangerine Dream. They were a German band founded in 1967 by Edgar Froese. Uh, this guy has been the steady member of the band throughout their entire run um, until he passed away a few years ago. But they were definitely most active in the 70s and 80s, with, with most of the adoration being paid to like their earlier albums, which, which generally had a very short track list, like three, four or five tracks with these gargantuan like progressive synth masterworks like huge in scope huge in scale tons of new never heard before sounds being created with all of like this this uh, insane analog gear and, and basically they were they were putting out these like hyper focused albums that looked and sounded like they were the soundtrack to like uh existing films but instead they were just these like really striking uh and alluring albums that seemed like they were from the future and, and I definitely recommend digging into their earlier stuff because th that's where the innovation is. But like this track, I don't know. I, I, I just couldn't avoid this track. This just sounds to me like the coming of age, like the coming of a new age, actually. I mean, it could be it could be music um, 
for a new era of man or something. <laughs> that's just the, the vibe I get from it. And, and that's really why I love this stuff. It, it fetishizes like futurism and it transports you to something that in 2020 sounds like, I don't know, like nostalgic futurism, a, a future that never really came true and, and one that we do not seem to be on track to achieve either. You know, whether that be, uh, you know, us as an underachieving species or, or, kind of just wisely diverting our course. I, I don't know. I mean, that's about as like philosophical as I can get with it. But this track is the jam. I don't even really need to say that much about it. I just need you to listen to it. It's super ominous. It has an incredible melody. It's it's a bit groovy. You've got these like panning arpeggiated harps that are like swirling around like halfway through the track. It's got those weird like wailing flutes. And then the noises all get sucked into this dark thundercloud and it's just raining by the end of the track.
All right, this next one is from Suzanne Ciani. That's spelled C-I-A-N-I. The track is called The First Wave, Birth of Venus. And this one is from her debut album, Seven Waves, which came out in 1982. And I'm going to start with a a quote from Suzanne um, about this particular uh, record. Suzanne said, With this album, I blended my classical romantic senses for melodies with the astounding possibilities offered by electronics. Because most of the instruments on Seven Waves no longer exist, this recording is a historic footprint in the evolution of music, unique to its time yet still valid today. So Suzanne has been referred to as America's first female synth hero. Um, Her story is pretty awesome. She got her start in New York City, traveling around, playing gigs with a a butchla, or maybe it's bukla, and that's got to be bukla, bukla synthesizer, which is uh, an early like modular synth. And and apparently she was one of like the first people to, to perform with it. Anyway, Suzanne then got hired to produce like jingles for ads for companies um i think like coca-cola and at&t um and i think atari as well if i remember correctly but um and she was doing all this like before completing work on her debut album which her label was extremely wary of releasing i mean and if you think about it like it's it's an album composed of like electronic synth music by a woman with no vocals um and this was all happening in like the very early 80s so this was just like in no way marketable back then. And, and I think that it barely is today, too, to be honest. But I've seen a lot of uh, love shown to Suzanne Ciani from kind of all corners of the electronic music world, like everything from techno uh, people to ambient musicians to new age musicians to like house DJs. Like she's definitely a pioneer in this world and, and someone who is finally getting some of their due like much later in life and I, I think she's probably in like her late 70s now but this track um you know this track really potentially veers into very corny territory because it has some of that new age quality that we can you know id really quick um and, and even though new age stuff is considered pretty hip these days like over the last five years there's a kind of whimsy to this track and and much of the album that's really charming and it's a really great escape i mean suzanne has like a mastery of tones and a melodicism that many synth kind of like wizards really only exercise when they when they hit on something special and i think there's also a touch of uh, femininity and, and romanticism here like as evidenced by that quote that lacks in a lot of this kind of stuff. So I appreciate that in the music. This is music that is very cosmic, but definitely not robotic. It's not too psychedelic either. It's it's self-described uh, quadraphonic music. Um, you know, music that is elevating something sacred and that we already know. And and just kind of, you know, the hands know where to go on the keys. They, they know what note to move next. And, and what you hear really is the, the sloshing around of like ocean waves throughout this track, which uh, Suzanne describes as a feminine rhythm and energy system. So it's a very soothing, uh, very beautiful track that shows how crazy good Suzanne was at producing varied and complementary sounds that are perfectly weaved throughout this track and, and honestly throughout the entire album.
So the next one is from the Godhead himself. I'm talking about Mr. Brian Eno, who is an artist that I could probably find a way to like fit into every single episode of this podcast, you know, regardless of the genre or the rabbit hole. So this one is a track from his third solo album. Um, this was the uh, era where he would, had left Roxy Music. And, and this album is called Another Green World, a super well-known album. And to me, Eno is all about the eras. I mean, the man was and in many ways is still like a shapeshifter in terms of all of the types of music that he had laid his hands on and ultimately like had a major influence to, on. But this record in particular is an interesting one. It's, it's definitely one of his most beloved in what is a massive catalog um, that's like, what, 60 albums deep um, if you include like soundtracks and collabs. But Another Green World really follows like two previous records of experimental art rock, um, talking about the albums Here Come the Warm Jets and Taking Tiger Mountain. I mean, these these were largely rock-based albums, although Eno is definitely tinkering around. Um, although Eno is definitely tinkering around with structures and textures like all over the place. They're, they're both amazing albums, but, but this is really the one where everything comes into place to sort of establish this sound that still retains like an art rock style. But Eno was just messing around in like the studio with just a totally different way. I mean, very unorthodox and sort of impromptu and improvisational recording techniques. And he was also utilizing instruments in, in really off-kilter ways. And there's a lot of really cool stories about um, this recording session that, that I, I, you should definitely look into. But, um, you know, I mean, only a few of the, few of the songs on this album have vocals. And, and all of a sudden, you know, Eno became interested in giving his audience mood pieces like that, that were really beautiful, very surreal, atmospheric and just kind of like devoid of structure. And, and something like this track, which comes off kind of like it kind of comes off like a loop with these organ like synths that build and harmonize with one another. It, it's just a really simple piece of music with several layers and with a distinct melody and, and really good counter melodies. And, and it's a moody little piece that is both sad and beautiful, uh, you know, just totally melancholy. And it's impossible like to get too bummed out listening to this because the instrumentation is so lively and percussive, but the chords are just like drowning and, and longing or like forlornness. And I think Eno referred to a lot more of the ambient pieces on this record as like, um, you know, more like they're more paintings than they are songs because they're just these like little three to four minute windows into like a visual kind of world and and that's really why this track makes the cut like on on, on this episode it's an artist using synthesizers and synthetic percussion to drop us into an environment that is like totally soaked with feeling and even though brian you know became like really famous for like his ambient series later on which you know he basically got into directly after the, the this record you know he really got into like this long form drony ambient and environmentally specific like type records um but but so, it's really songs like this that demonstrate that a simple synth line with some clever and, and and affecting texturing can really pull the listener in the same way that like say a string quartet can
Okay, this next one is from John Carpenter. Um, John Carpenter is an American film director. He's a producer, actor, screenwriter, and music composer. And, and this guy soundtracked a lot of his own films that he directed. So we're, so we're talking about somebody who presumably knows exactly what they want when it comes to like putting out a piece of art. And, and this track is called Christine. Um, it's from the soundtrack to his 1983 film of the same name. Um, I think this is a movie about a possessed killer car. And, and with this track, we're starting to brush up against soundtrack music of the 70s and 80s, which, you know, definitely fucked heavy with like synthesizers. And trust me, I know there were like a billion cuts to possibly choose from um, in this particular lane. But the crazy thing is that like almost every song on here has been used as a soundtrack in a film or some other visual medium. And while we're kind of honing in on these tracks themselves, you can't really listen to this stuff and not conjure up like images in your head, whether it's within the context of what it's soundtracking, like if you know that ahead of time, um, the, the concept of the record or, or just maybe even some shit that you're <laughs> linking it up to in your own imagination. But what Carpenter does with a lot of his scores, um, especially like these title track cuts, which serve as like the main theme of the film, is he gives us like a perfect pop nugget of a track. And by pop, I mean as clean and straight to the point as someone can be without like vocals or without a verse chorus structure. And, and another thing that he did so well, besides provide these like instantly recognizable and memorable title cuts to like his films was basically invent like modern synthwave and and that's not really a term um, I, i'm super comfortable with because it's just not really a style of music i spend too much time on and i don't even really know how it differentiates itself from like synth pop uh but from what i can tell it's it's music being made in the now the modern times that is like hearkening back to these types of sonics you know basically like super cornball stuff that Carpenter was being incredibly genuine about at the time, like, you know, ominous synth lines, driving rhythms, music that like a rock band could really adapt into like their setup very easily. Like all these signifiers of, of the eighties that scream like neon signs and like driving down a highway at night with like the ocean on one side and like the fucking city skyline on the other it's just all style basically and it's a cool one like no doubt it is but it's it's a chase for like a distant nostalgia at the end of the day um you know what it does show however is like just how enduring composers like john carpenter really were i mean he really was like the king at building up suspense in these songs and this track christine is is so great i mean the synths are like they sound like kind of heavy and it's just like that cheesy vibe that's also very menacing and john carpenter achieves that so easily because he's not wrapped up in anything other than giving service to the narrative of his films and if you've seen any of his films like you know that the music score is massively important and and as like memorable as the film itself sometimes i mean sometimes more um but if you're new to john carpenter i, I definitely recommend checking out a compilation that sacred bones records put out a couple years back um, i think it's just called anthology and, and what it does is it just rounds up like all of his best and biggest soundtrack cuts. But with Carpenter and I think his son like his plays on it too and some other bands like basically like re-recording these these title cuts and adapting them to like kind of a rock and roll setting. Um, it, it, and it sounds really great because they like really beef up these songs and give them like a, a corny like heavy metal treatment. 
it, it just totally fucking rules. And it goes to show you how iconic these like two to three minute tracks that John Carpenter would put out. Like it just shows you how iconic they really are. <laughs> Okay, we're starting to get the feel for this stuff, so I'm going to throw in something uh, pretty weird. This next one is an excerpt um, from the 1981 album E2, E4 from Manuel Gotching. But this is just a, a really weird one, and, and I'm not sure where to start here. And um, don't sweat it if you don't recognize this dude's name, because I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not well known outside of the world of like Krautrock and early electronic music that was coming out of Germany. But basically, this dude was in a group called Ashra Temple and also a, another band after that called Ashra, who we heard in the episodes opening like background music. Um, two really interesting and cool bands. I mean, definitely check out Ashra Temple's like debut album from 1971. It's basically like the super stony psych rock that goes into some really uh, great ambient and quiet sections that remind me like of Popol Vuh. Um, but also check out his uh, his project after that called just called Ashra. Um, they put out an album called New Age of Earth. And if you want something cosmic and rhythmic, but kind of more new agey. Like, I actually almost picked a track from the Ashra album to go on this episode, but it, it just barely didn't make the cut. So, um, you know, when that happens, you get thrown into the background music of the show. But, um, 
you know, back to back to this project that, that, that we're looking at here. This album, E2 through E4, it's essentially one long piece of music that never cuts out at like any point. And in fact, if you were to just like fast forward through the entire album, just kind of to pause every once in a while, you might think that this whole thing was just the same 15 second loop over and over for an hour. But this is really like the ultimate exercise in building and building and building like a track with layers of synths and sequencing. I mean, this track evolves like very slowly despite its jittery rhythm and like very busy programming. But this is total space out music. It, it locks you into its groove and it pushes you forward with this like hypnotizing, strange groove. And really the craziest thing about this entire album, of which I'm only going to play like a, an excerpt of, um, is that this came out in 1981, but it, it sounds like electronic music from like the mid or late 90s. Like this could easily be something that Aphex Twin or, or Autiker or even a lot of the more straight up techno and rave music that was influencing the underground at that time, like it could easily fit into all that stuff. You know, it would seem that this album is a direct link, um, you know, basically DNA to all kinds of electronic dance music based on like the heaps of praise that this is given to people saying it's way ahead of its time, massively influential without ever really getting its due beyond being in, you know, like cool magazines like The Wire or like, you know, The Quietus and, and that kind of shit. But this is a really cool record that shows you what master sequencing can achieve with synth sounds. And it's one of those albums you put on in the background and it just like it just goes by in one sitting. And it's not so much music to like absorb, but music to kind of relegate to the background. But, you know, when you do give a uh, you know, music like this attention, you realize how this fool basically like helped create like dancey electronic music and probably only ever got his, his due from like a bunch of techno nerds. Anyway, this is really cool shit and, and I don't even like techno.
next one is by Terry Riley, and it is called Lifespan in the Summer. And it's actually a soundtrack piece for a film titled Lifespan from 1974. So Terry Riley is is one of these guys like he, he's one of the most legendary minimalist composers and musicians in like the post-war era and he was really pivotal in like experimenting with tape loops and bringing like heavy use of repetition into like western music and, and terry riley really wasn't like much of a synth guru to be totally honest here but he definitely did use synth and in, in his compositions um, well some of them and, and it's his experiments with like looping, delay, and like these textured compositions that's more important here than like him like totally shredding on a synth or like programming the living shit out of it. And, and this is why I went with, a, you know, a Terry Riley track that's not one of his, you know, most famous or well-studied like compositions. Like not a lot of his stuff actually features synth most of the time. But the stuff that does slots in well here, while giving us like a totally different approach entirely to like synthesizer-driven music, is really why I picked a track like this. Um, so, so this track, like I mentioned, it was used to soundtrack a, a film called Lifespan. And this was like a horror film from the mid-70s starring uh, Klaus Kinski, which, you know, I've never seen this movie, but if it's got Klaus Kinski in it, it's got to be worth seeing. And here on this track, we see Terry, like, abandoning a lot of that crazy experimenting that he had become so acclaimed for, um, you know, these sort of, like, minimalist compositions. And this is really him, like, sitting down with a synth and an organ and using repetition and arpeggiation to create this, like, uh, you know, like, celestial, almost new-agey, like prayer like peace and it's very moving i mean it's it's crazy to think that people were doing stuff like this in the 1970s because this sounds totally fresh i mean this sounds almost exactly like something off of a one of tricks point never album uh, or like something from uh emeralds um and hint uh definitely get on uh the next episode if those names are getting you hot and bothered but um i really love terry's use of vocals on this track I think it gives this piece a lot of feeling. I mean, a lot of the a lot of these tracks are vocalless, but it's it's also not this like cold robotic approach at all. It's it's very warm. It's very organic, and I think that it's achieved through Terry Riley's like minimalist tradition and maybe his interest in jazz and Indian classical music. You know, styles and genres that don't enter too heavily into the synth landscape of the 1970s and 1980s. <laughs>
All right, we're about halfway through. And the next one is from Art of Noise. The track is called Moments in Love. It is from 1984 and off of the debut album, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise? And, and this is like an absolutely legendary track that gets cited left and right from artists like all over the musical map. And there are 18 versions of the song, um, but the, it's really the original 10-minute version that is the best one, um, no doubt about that. But what I'm going to play for you is called the original battle version. It's a bit shorter, about half as long, but um, you really get kind of like the point of the song. Um, if you love it, definitely check out the full version. But this song, Moments of Love, is considered like a cornerstone of digital sampling-based work. And it's this... It's just this like super dreamy soundscape with these heavy synth leads and these like synth stabs and, and choir effects. <laughs> and the track just builds and builds these layers onto it. I mean, each edition is like more awesome than the one that came before it. And, and it's a difficult track to classify. Um, it's like a very hard track to classify because it, it sounds very retro, but it's also futuristic. I mean, you can't tell whether this is trying to be like a synth pop song or a new wave song or like hip hop or if it exists to like soundtrack like a chocolate commercial or something like that it's just this strange androgynous piece of music and i i can't say that i've ever listened to like art of noises records in full so i can't give you any context here about like who these people are i mean all i know is that they are they were a uk group and that they were using something called a Fairlight CMI, um, which was like the first sampler ever created. But anyway, like there's synthesizer all over this thing. They're just not like the cosmic 70s shit that I've been playing a lot of so far. I mean, these are like cornball sounds that are just so great and so endearing. And the song is just, is just it's weirdly alluring. Like it, it seems like it must have been an accident or something. And it just speaks to the cut and paste, like highly produced, highly sampled approach to synthesizer music um, that can really yield like some standout shit. Like, I'm fairly sure that this was like the chillest, most overly sensual track of 1984. And, and I don't think I really know what chill wave is, but I, I bet all of those chill wave uh, artists from a few years back were like drooling over shit like this. And I also get like a, a serious like DJ shadow or like RJD2 or like, instrumental hip-hop kind of feeling from this as well and i know um you know lp of, of run the jewels and and you know just the solo work um has gone on record like praising this track's production and, and i think that might even be how i i uh, uh found out about it but anyway enjoy this one it's definitely super different from the others put it on at a party or something and and i and i guarantee you every other person will come up to you for for the track id
Okay, this next one comes from the great Klaus Schulz, who is Krautrock royalty. I mean, this guy served time in Ashraf Temple and Tangerine Dream before having like a really prolific like solo career dabbling in cosmic progressive electronic music as any good German does. And, and this track is called Mind Phaser and it's from his sixth album, Moon Dawn. These are great titles, like <laughs> love it. Um, and it's from 1976. And I don't think you'll find a, a, a more stereotypical album title or album art <laughs> than this. Like, you know what the fuck you are getting into when you see this dusty ass LP at a record store. But, you know, that doesn't stop it from from ruling super hard. And this is probably the closest thing I've got in this track list to like straight up kraut rock or even like hard rock. And, and it's primarily synthesizers and sequencers, um, but it's got this like really great jazzy drummer like going to town like halfway through the track too. But this track is 25 minutes long. It's a monster. Um, so I'm going to play y'all like an excerpt of, of several minutes or so. I'm going to kind of start it when things really start to kick in. Things get very ominous. Uh, they get very cosmic. And there's a lot of synth shredding happening all over this track. And, and I wanted to have a track like this on here to kind of showcase like the flashier side of this world. Um, you know, one where you get like rock band dynamics happening, like just the only difference is it's like all over these analog machines. And this is definitely like the acid rock of the progressive synth world. And, and it conjures up like distant alien or even like dune kind of landscapes. Um, it's, it's just a totally, totally like indulgent, virtuosic display of showmanship. Um, something that could actually be played in front of like an arena of fans and like get the crowd moving, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, this is pretty much the closest thing we'll get to Prague or Fusion here. But I think it doesn't fully enter that lane because like, again, the, the synths and the sequencing and the effects are really the focal point. It's not necessarily like the interplay between Klaus and like the drummer on this track. I mean, the drums are like a, a really great addition. They add like a lot of like propulsion and drive. But even the drums are like super low in the mix. And, and, and they're not really flashy, like, or at least not as flashy as they can be. They're just kind of providing a counterpoint and timekeeper. I mean, it's mostly symbols even. But yeah, Klaus Schulz, um, he's probably the most virtuosic of, of the lot here. And, and, you know, that's saying a lot because this dude was a total ripper on the synth and, and employed all kinds of like patches and sonic qualities, which, you know, had to have just taken like hundreds of hours to arrive at. But yeah, this guy is a, a total synth guru, a total shred machine and a total ubermensch.
okay, I hope you're sick of robotic Caucasian synth wizards because we're mixing things up here. I think we really needed to. Um, and we're going to bring in somebody into the fold um, who is using synthesizers in a totally different context. And, and this is also somebody who doesn't get a lot of credit for her use of synthesizers. And, and this track is by another godhead. Um, I am talking about Alice Coltrane. And it's called Rama Rama, and it's from her 1987 album, Divine Songs. I know I said uh, no jazz with synths, but you could argue that this is not jazz, um, despite having a, 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 an illustrious, amazing career um, as a jazz musician. But really at this point, like Alice was no longer even going by the name Alice Coltrane. I mean, she had adopted her Sanskrit name. Um, I have it written down here. What is it? Swamini Turiya Sanji Tananda. And at, at this point, the cosmic jazz of her earlier career, you know, like the Impulse Records material, is very much like a thing of the past. And what you're getting instead is this like ecstatic blend of organ, uh, Vedic group chanting, um, like Indian Tanpura, like very simple percussion, hand claps, stuff like that, and synthesizer. And, and these synthesizers are, are not subtle. They're like, this, it's like this big, beautiful fucking synthesizer that just, it, it sounds like a river of synths just like running through these soulful and these devotional songs that have like one foot in like a, a holy ashram, like an Indian style holy ashram, and then another foot in like, a, you know, a black like gospel church. And Alice really took to playing like, uh, she really took to playing a, a synth called the Oberheim OB8, which is like a, a gigantic, like not just in the sound, like this thing was physically big. Like a gigantic synth that was in production for two years. And they really only made a couple thousand of these things. And she plays the synth with like these big expressive chords that are very swooshy. And they alternate between like high pitched and low. And, you know, it almost sounds like a siren or something. And it's almost jarring at first, but like uh, texturally, like she's really brilliant with them. And if you're familiar with her like earlier discography, you know that like especially on her live, like those live albums, like, you know that Alice was able to improvise and just go nuts, like on the organ. So what we have here is like something far more textural, much more restrained than like her jazz chops would suggest, but it's still very, very cosmic. It's very, very eth- ethereal. It's um, uh, definitely like a continuation or evolution from her earlier, like really groundbreaking work in like the spiritual jazz world. And, and I'll go ahead and and plug myself here because I did an entire episode on spiritual jazz a few episodes back. And although I was focusing on newer artists playing in that style, um, you know, Alice Coltrane's mark is all over like that current crop of like uh, spiritual jazz, like artists. Um, but anyway, like back to this track, like Alice plays these huge synth swells that just overtake everything. And I don't know, it's just like a really unorthodox and unique way of incorporating the instrument. And the context here is unlike anything else on the track list, like I said before. I mean, it's kind of jazz, it's, uh, I suppose. It's more like the framework is jazz, the his- like her artistic like history is jazz. But it's like mostly like this, you know, part devotional Indian music, part like gospel kind of thing. And Alice went on exploring the sound for like several albums, all of which are like worth your time. And I would say a really, really good place to start is um, that compilation that came out on uh, uh, Luwaka Bop um, a few years ago. 
in I think it's called The Ecstatic World of Alice Coltrane. Um, and this track is actually also featured on that record. So great starting point. Um, start there and then dig your way into, uh, you know, those later Alice Coltrane records.
Next up, we have the mighty Frenchman himself, Jean-Michel Jarre. This track is called Part 2. I'm sorry, this track is called Part 4, and it's from his 1976 synthesizer opus, Oxygene. So this album went to number one on the French charts, uh, proving that the French often know what's up. I mean, you got uh, guillotines, you got baguettes, you got... uh, people smoking cigs all the time. I mean, this is how a society should be structured. But, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised to see that this album was panned by a lot of rock and music critics at the time. I mean, even user reviews of this album um, in modern times are not so good. But it seemed to sustain like a cult following throughout the decades. You know, it's a tight, fairly simple take on spacey synth music. Um, It's got a lot of warmth, um, but it's not particularly dark. Um, or menacing or anything like that. It's not especially progressive in the way that like Tangerine Dream or Klaus Schulz were. 
it's not new agey definitely not that um you know it's basically uh, arcade music and and i mean that in a good way it sounds extremely cornball these days but um i'm really into the melodies and the detail i like the colors that he's painting with and and sure it's probably the kind of album that you'd want to like clean your house to but um you know it's got a lot of charm and 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 i would say this is a really good starting point for you know less adventurous listeners and and you know this kind of cheese has definitely like resurfaced as chic in modern times so you know you can say that jean-michel jarre's like influence has sustained itself over time and oxygen is definitely the album to check out by him
All right, you've made it this far, and I reward those who stick deep into the track list. Um, I'm going to introduce you, possibly, to a true king of the synth game. You probably already know him from his soundtrack work. Of course, I am talking about Evangelos Odysseus Papathanasio, who is also known as Vangelis, or also known as the guy who did the Blade Runner soundtrack. And this track that we're going to hear is called Spiral. It is off uh, his 1977 album of the same name. And this is definitely like earlier in Vangelis's career when he was proving to the world that he could basically be his own orchestra with a few synthesizers. So Vangelis is from Greece, and he started off in, in psychedelic rock bands, including the totally amazing uh, group Aphrodite's Child, Stop what you're doing. Check out their album. It's called 666. It is a total ruler. And, and Vangelis eventually like moved into scoring music and making his own solo albums, which really run the gamut from like hippie rock to like these deep synth odysseys. And he's primarily known for like his mind-boggling synth work and programming. And his style is definitely what I, I would describe as orchestrated, like more so than anyone else here by a lot. This is very dramatic like I would even say pompous like kind of stuff. And, and I mean, it's basically as if all of his synths were like a full orchestra, which he is conducting. I mean, he treats compositions in a very classical sense with like these big swells, these crescendos, these buildups. He loves to use synth sounds that emulate horns and strings, um, tons of different like percussion and cymbals. I mean, it can even sound like a bit medieval sometimes, like futuristic medieval. Um, um, very cornball stuff. Uh, I think that's just like a, a, a warning we need ahead of everything here. But um, the man is really, really brilliant. I mean, his stuff is just so epic. It's so grandiose. It's so like European. <laughs> and, and, and this track Spiral is all of those things. Like he's just so good at overlapping these synth sequences in like very complex and dramatic ways. And, and the way that Vangelis like programs these sequence parts just sounds so fucking awesome. I mean, it's such a great technique, like in the world of synths. And he was a total pioneer for his time and, and even beyond. I mean, he's got a really deep catalog, tons of like film scores and solo albums. I mean, many of which I have yet to explore myself. But nearly everything I've heard from him in this era is like very quality. And you know you're dealing with a total master when you spend any amount of time with like Evangelist's material. <laughs>
right, people, we have arrived at the finale, and I have once again left one of the best tracks, maybe the best track for last. Because, you know, for me, like, in this world, it's the soft, warm, kind of rustic synthesizer tones. Uh, those are where my heart is at. And this collaborative project from the German group Harmonia, and once again, uh, Brian Eno is really the sweet spot for me. So this track is called Welcome, and it's from the record Tracks and Traces, which was recorded in 1976. So a little bit of background, like Harmonia is a cosmic music group, um, kind of a super group. They featured a, a guitarist from the group Noi, uh, Michael Rother, and it also featured cluster members, uh, Rodelius and Mobius. And uh, Brian Eno was like a big fan of so many kinds of music, but he, he really had his ear to a lot of a lot of like the 70s stuff that was coming out of Germany at the time. And of all of the groups, he, he seemed to love Harmonia the most. I mean, at, at one point he said they were the most important band in the world. Um, and, and, you know, I like them too, but uh, I don't know. That's a bit of hyperbole in my opinion. But, you know, you know, loved this cosmic German Krautrock stuff. So, and he loved it so much that it, it definitely bled into his work. Just listen to like uh, David Bowie's record Low, which, uh, you know, helped produce. But anyway, um, what you have here on this track is like a, it's kind of like a pastoral take on progressive electronic music um, that is very synth forward. And this is a, a very simple, very beautiful piece of music with a, a timeless melody. It kind of just sounds like the sun rising at dawn. I mean, it's got nothing to do with robots or futurism or badass cars racing down the Autobahn. It's just like this song with a couple of pulsing synths. The warmness is just coming off of the analog equipment. And, and it's got this nice, you know, guitar noodling that's, you know, not, not too loud. That's just kind of pushing things along. And this, this all is just to say that the synthesizer is a hell of an instrument. I mean, it's taken us into many, many worlds here, like many moods, all kinds of different vibes and styles. And it's really threaded the needle um, through multiple forms of music. And ultimately, it always comes down to an artist's ability to bend the instrument to their voice and to their vision. So we're going to go out on this perfect piece of music. As always, rate and review. And I, I appreciate the last couple of reviews that came in. Um, you know, donate to the Sonic Claw Slush Fund. I'll probably use the money to buy chips. And, uh, you know, you know, stay connected. We're going to we're going to come back here with part two of the synth wizards where we will get into the uh, the students take on synthesizer music. And this will really pick up where we left off and, and start in the 90s up until like the modern hellscape that we find ourselves in. So, uh, yeah. All right. Till next time. Uh, adios. Uh, auf Wiedersehen to the 14 people in Germany who have listened to this podcast. Uh, yes, I looked that up. And, uh, you know, don't you fret. I'm going to have part two up in a couple weeks. So stay subscribed, uh, stay safe, and uh, keep up the deep listening. <laughs>